Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite-sized podcast for parents. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This is a show all about parenting. I speak to experts and carers about everything from fussy eating, toddler behavior, sleep and more. Most of us have probably, at one time or another, worried about our child being mean or uncaring. But those moments pass and we can see that it's part of normal childhood behaviour. They're learning empathy and growing better at compassion as their brains develop. But what happens if you have a child who is mostly mean and mostly callous? What do you do then? Eva Kimonis is a clinical psychologist at the University of New South Wales. She leads parent-child interaction therapy for parents of young children with disruptive behaviour problems. Hi, Eva. How are you? Oh, good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. When do parents and carers come to you for help? Typically, parents and carers will come to us for help when their children are showing really extreme levels of noncompliance and defiance or very severe behaviours that are aggressive and destructive. Um, And often it's when these behaviours are starting to affect the child's functioning at school or leading to a lot of conflict at home. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of parents hear that and I'm not sure that they quite understand what um, these extreme behaviours mean. They might think, oh, but all children are naughty at some point. Do you have any practical examples of the kind of behaviours that parents are dealing with? Sure. When parents are experiencing children who are refusing to do what they're told to do on more days than not, when it's happening almost every day um, for at least six months or more, that's when parents might be considering that they need uh, professional help or when teachers are telling the parents that their child is committing very aggressive behavior, often hitting or biting or scratching other children um, at daycare or school. Um, and often our parents will tell us that the the school has said that the child may not be able to return because of how severe their behaviors are. So if parents are hearing from the educators or early educators that their child is involved in these types of aggressive, destructive, um, extremely non-compliant behaviors on most days at home, but also in other caregiving environments, that's when they may be wanting to get professional help. I suppose if that is happening for a parent with a child like that, they're probably wondering why. We, we want to know why our children display these kinds of behaviours. Why might a child be um, callous or have psychopathic tendencies? Sure, and it's important that we distinguish between aggressive and destructive behaviours and behaviours that are callous. So when we refer to what's called callous and unemotional behaviours, we are describing children that are showing very low levels of empathy and guilt compared to other kids their age. They don't really care how well they do in important activities. It's very hard to motivate them to want to do well in places like school. And, and what we see is that kids that have these callous and unemotional traits often tend to also have those aggressive and destructive behaviors. So returning to your question, why might a child have these callous traits? Right now, the exact causes are still unknown. 
But just like many or most mental health problems, we do know that there seems to be, it seems to be due to a combination of both genetics and environment. Right. Kids with, sure, kids with Cal's um, traits are often different in their temperament. So we know that kids who are extremely fearless or socially uninhibited, they like, they like to do new things or they're not afraid to, to approach a stranger or, or do something that's extremely new. Kids who are insensitive to punishment where the parent is saying, no matter what I do, no matter what punishment I use, they're just still not working. They're just still doing these problematic behaviors. Um, and also kids that are showing very early aggression, like hitting, biting, scratching other children. There's this temperamental difference. But we also see neurocognitive differences in kids with callous traits, where they struggle with learning changes in consequences. So if they do a behavior that is rewarded, and then there's a change in that consequence where that same behavior is now punished, they struggle with that change. They struggle to learn that new contingency. Mm -hmm. um, and we also see brain differences in kids with callous traits where that emotional center of the brain, the amygdala, it's less responsive to other people's distress. And, you know, across the board in all the bodily systems, we see that lack of sensitivity to other people's distress. Um, and we don't know where these differences are coming from, but there is evidence that there is a stronger genetic contribution to callous traits. Um, but we also see on the environmental end that parents of children with callous behaviors are less sensitive and less warm. But there does seem to be this chicken and egg problem where we don't know which came first. Um, was it that the child kind of evoked that more dysfunctional parenting or was it that the more dysfunctional parenting caused the callous traits? And that's something we're still trying to figure out. What about if the child has not had good attachment in the first year? And I'm not talking about um, hippie mums, bless their souls, carrying their baby around for 24 hours. I mean, the communication between parent and child hasn't happened in that first year. Do you know if attachment plays a role in callous behaviours later on? We do see that children with callous traits do have poor parent-child attachments. But again, we don't really know where that's coming from. We don't know if that's coming from something that the child's bringing to the situation or if that's something that is caused by the parent or it could be that interaction between the two. Um, there was a very interesting study that looked at infants at five weeks of age that found that when these infants had a preference for objects over mother's face, they were more likely to develop callous traits um, wow. later on in life. Um, and we all know how difficult parenting is. And if you're not getting much back, you might see how a parent could disengage from that child, which would then create this vicious cycle. And what if um, I'm thinking here of maybe kids that have been placed in the foster care system who may have experienced for various reasons, a lack of attachment to their parents when they're young and, and that's why they've been removed. Does it follow that if that has happened and you know that's happened from the parent's side, does it follow that they will necessarily develop callous tendencies? Well, in terms of children who are maltreated, we do know that there's a really broad range of outcomes that includes healthy adaptation. But we, what we also know in terms of kids with callous traits is that there is evidence that some kids with callous traits have more 
parental maltreatment in early life. But there's also other children who have callous traits that have no known history of trauma, which supports that strong genetic contribution and the fact that these kids are entering the world with just a different disposition. Mm. There's also, it's hard, it can be hard to tease apart the effect of genes and environment when you do have a maltreating parent. Um, so, for example, if you have a psychopathic parent um, who just really doesn't experience much empathy or remorse, they're not only likely to transmit that genetic risk to their child to have those same sorts of traits, but they're also more likely to engage in these really dysfunctional um, and harsh types of parenting. And we do have some really interesting research from adoption studies where you've got kids who have been removed from their biological parent and adopted by their adoptive parent. And what we've found from those studies is that where a child has a biological parent that has that very low desire for closeness to others, which we see in um, conditions like psychopathy, these kids tend to evoke more harsh parenting from their adoptive caregivers, which then leads to more callousness and more behavior problems. So again, that vicious cycle. So clearly the kids, um, even though they're in a different environment, are bringing something genetically with them that's changing the nature of the parenting they receive in those adoptive homes. What age range do you treat in your parent-child interaction therapy? The, so parent-child interaction therapy is specifically da- designed for children between the ages of two and seven years old. Um, there's been quite a lot of research showing that this um, parent-child interaction therapy works specifically within that age range. And that's the treatment approach that we use at my clinic, which is called the Parent-Child Research Clinic at UNSW. Um, and there's decades of support for the efficacy of, of PCIT um, that's gone back to the since the 1970s for this particular age range. And I mean, it, it probably is quite self-evident in the title, but can you explain a bit about how you use that therapy to help the child? Sure. So what parent-child interaction therapy or PCIT does is it teaches parents these very special parenting skills that encourages more child compliance and less antisocial or aggressive behavior. And as the therapist, we coach the parent in real time from behind a one-way mirror while the parent wears an earpiece while they play with their child in a specific type of therapeutic play. Um, So they're getting, parents are getting this real time coaching where almost every statement that they make, they make in the play, we are giving them feedback on that very brief feedback that moves them towards using the types of parenting skills that we know these children need. Um, And we've seen from the research that PCIT reduces behavior, severe behavior problems, reduces aggression and also increases positive parenting skills. How successful is it? I can imagine that these situations for families are quite heartbreaking. If you have a child who is, um, has those callous or psychopathic tendencies and you're, you're trying to help them, it, I imagine it could be heartbreaking, it could be destructive. When they engage in these sorts of treatments, do you get to see that change for families in terms of the impact of that behaviour? Standard parent-child interaction therapy is is very effective for many families with improvements that are lasting over three years or more. But for the kids that have callous traits, these types of standard treatments are less effective. So kids with callous traits are entering 
treatment with more severe behavior problems and they're exiting treatment. So when treatment finishes, they're still having more severe behavior problems to a level that's, that would meet criteria for a diagnosis like um, oppositional defiant disorder. And so what we've been doing in my research clinic is trying to make PCIT better for kids with callous emotional traits by addressing their specific and personalized needs. By specific and personalized needs, I'm referring to that need for more warm and responsive and attachment-rich type of parenting. Also trying to address their insensitivity to punishment. We focus on reward for this population because we know that kids with callous traits are very sensitive to reward, but also de-emphasizing the punishment component. And finally, we teach kids emotional literacy skills to try and counter that tendency for them to not be sensitive to other people's distress, to try and build up their empathy levels and their emotional intelligence. I know that you're in your clinic, you're focused on helping the child, but do you have any opinions in terms of how we should be helping other members of the family, say if there's another sibling or if the parents themselves are struggling and it's been really hard, do they need as much, maybe not as much support, but do they need support as well if this kind of treatment's going to work? What's great about a program like PCIT is that it does work with the whole family, more so with the parents and the child, the target child who's having the problems. Um, So we're very much working with the parent to improve their skill level so that they're not relying on those kind of typical parenting strategies that might have worked for their other children, but we're teaching them how to use other types of strategies that work for this specific child. Um, And what that does is it helps parents to feel more confident in their ability to manage these really problematic behaviors. And we also encourage them to use those skills with siblings. We haven't looked at this yet, but a really important thing will be to see how that reduction in the target child's behavior problems creates a more harmonious home environment for everybody, including the siblings and any extended family that might be living in the home. And that's sort of next steps in trying to understand the broader impact of programs like PCIT. And and what happens to children who don't respond to treatment? Because it sounds like this is a very specialised area. I can't imagine there are many people who know how to help children who have this kind of behaviour. What happens if they don't respond to treatment or they don't get the treatment they need? Sure. We've so far done um, an open trial where we worked with 23 families with this um, specialized or enhanced treatment. And what was great was that we found in that particular study that 75% of the children improved to the point that they were no longer showing problems in a clinical range. They were within normal limits of behavior. Um, And we've more recently done a randomized trial, which shows that this enhanced treatment is as good as standard treatment, but what it does better is it helps with the longevity of effects. So we see more kind of sustained improvements over time. But when children aren't getting treatments like this, or parents are prematurely dropping out, or families just aren't benefiting from treatment, because there will always be families that don't, um, unfortunately, they're more likely to continue down an antisocial course. What this looks like is that it may, might involve school failure or dropout, being expelled from school, 
Um, and we know these kids to be especially more likely to develop friendships with delinquent peers who are then encouraging them to engage in criminal behavior, which then gets them involved in the kind of entrenched in the justice system. Um, and for some kids, this might involve substance abuse and dependence, which is really hard to get away from and can cause even more future problems. So the, the, the Dunedin Longitudinal Study was um, a really important study that told us that about 10% of kids from age seven are showing these really chronic antisocial behaviors across the lifespan. And when they looked at these, this 10% as adults, what they found is that they had the most profound problems across all of the, all of the individuals in the population that they studied, where they had the most severe mental health problems, substance abuse problems, physical health problems, financial problems and relationship difficulties. And most were still, or a significant proportion was still engaging in violent acts that kept them involved in the justice system. So what we really want to try to do is prevent this um, negative course by, you know, nipping this trajectory in the bud and really providing early evidence-based intervention that we tailor to the specific needs of the child and family so that they're less likely to drop out or not to benefit from the treatment. So in that sense, it sounds like a really vital service. Do you have enough support for what you need to do? Um, are you getting enough government support? Is there enough people doing this work in Australia? There can definitely be more support. Um, it's, it's, it's a big problem. Um, and I think antisocial behaviour is uh, notoriously underfunded. Um, so certainly, you know, more could be done to support how we research programs like the, you know, enhanced treatments for kids with callous traits that allows us to train other practitioners on how to treat these children. Um, but it wasn't really until recently that we knew how best to do that. So I think the next step will be to take that research and really disseminate it out to the Australian practitioner community. Eva, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. That's Eva Kimonis. She's a clinical psychologist at the University of New South Wales, and I'll put links to their website in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.